Welcome to the One God Report podcast. This podcast is called More New Creation in the Gospel of John. In a previous podcast, episode number seven, we saw that the phrase in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse one, relates to the new beginning that God began with Jesus the Messiah. In the beginning of John 1, 1, while being an intentional allusion to the Genesis creation, introduces a new beginning or new creation that begins with Jesus the Messiah. In this podcast, we will examine further the new creation theme in the Gospel of John, keeping in mind that the biblical new creation is not a demolition of the current heavens and earth, followed by a total new recreation of matter. Rather, biblical new creation is the rejuvenation or restoration of the current heavens and earth to the righteousness and goodness that God intends. Biblical scholars have recognized the new creation theme in the Gospel of John. I will read three quotes as examples from scholars who recognize that the Gospel of John is proclaiming God's work of new creation. The first quote is from F.F. F. Bruce, from his commentary called The Gospel of John, a Verse-by-Verse Exposition. Here is what F.F. F. Bruce wrote. It is not by accident that the Gospel begins with the same phrase as the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, introduces the story of the old creation. Here, it introduces the story of the new creation. Unquote. The next quote is from N.T. Wright, from his article called, What John Really Meant, The Gospel of the New Temple. John's opening move is, of course, bold. Are you really sitting down to write a new Genesis? Yes, replies John, because that is the truth to which I'm bearing witness. I'm telling a story about something that has happened in which heaven and earth have come together in a whole new way about the fulfillment of the Creator's purpose for His creation." Unquote. The third scholar I'd like to quote is Leon Morris from his commentary published by Erdman's called The Gospel According to John. Here's Leon Morris, quote, John is writing about a new beginning, a new creation, so he uses words which recall the first creation. He soon goes on to use other words which loom large in Genesis such as life, verse 4, light, and darkness. Genesis 1 described God's first creation. John's theme is God's new creation, unquote. Now these are just samples. Comments like these are found in many scholarly commentaries. Unfortunately, Trinitarian scholars like the three quoted above seem to forget what they say about new creation in John's gospel as they then go on to contradict themselves by interpreting John chapter 1 as referring directly to the Genesis creation. These commentators seem to ignore their own comments about the new creation in John's gospel and then interpret John 1 as describing some second God person or the logos or word who participated in the original creation of rocks and planets and trees and animals and humans as described in Genesis 1. This is a concept found nowhere else in any of the other 65 books of the Bible. I suggest it is their presuppositions about a pre-existent Jesus or deity of Christ 
that forced Trinitarian commentators back into an incorrect interpretation of the Gospel of John's introduction. These modern commentators apply a non-Hebraic theological framework about a pre-existent logos, God-person, a theology that was developed in the second to fourth centuries after Jesus, and they apply it onto this first century AD Hebraic document. Applying pre-existent logos or deity of Christ interpretations onto John 1 has at least two very unfortunate consequences. First, doing so creates a contradiction between John 1 and so much of the rest of the Bible that says that Yahweh, God, the Father alone is creator. And there are many, many scriptures that could be referred to in this vein. I'll just quote one as an example. Isaiah 44, 24, quote, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth by myself. The second very unfortunate consequence of interpreting the first chapter of the Gospel of John to be describing directly the Genesis creation is that it diminishes, ignores, and even forgets entirely the recreation work that Yahweh, God, is doing through the life and ministry of his word in flesh, Jesus the Messiah. So let's look at the idea that the Gospel of John is presenting a new beginning, a new creation. I've titled this next section, The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is the God of New Beginnings. The Old Testament is the foundation for knowing that new beginnings are the specialty of the God of the Bible, that is Yahweh. That is, a Hebraic, biblical-thinking person could recognize that the Gospel of John is declaring that God, through Jesus, has begun something new which the Old Testament writers expected and longed for. Perhaps the most prominent and obvious new creation references are spoken by Yahweh through the prophet Isaiah. Some examples, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 18. Yahweh says, quote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy." Unquote. And here's Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Unquote. Yahweh says in Isaiah 43, verse 19, quote, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Unquote. Yahweh then goes on to describe a revolutionary change in both the earth's and mankind's circumstances, a change from a barren, desolate, uninhabited land to a flourishing, living, thriving land for his people. Indeed, the change is described as restoration to a garden of Eden. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 3 reads, Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. 
The prophet Isaiah was not speaking suddenly in a vacuum. He wasn't a lone voice in the wilderness in this case. He was part of a long tradition of biblical hope of Yahweh's restorative redemption. Indeed, redemption is new creation. As described in the early chapters of Genesis, through the sin of the first man, Adam, death and a futility curse came upon humanity and creation. But God said he would not leave humanity and creation forever subject to death and destruction under the futility curse. Instead, God promised a reversal of death and removal of the futility curse. And that reversal would come through a descendant of Eve, that is, through a human being. The Apostle Paul knew of this promise of restoration and recreation and that it would come through one man. Let me emphasize this. The Hebrew scriptures anticipated, and the New Testament proclaims, that the redemption and restoration of humanity and the earth comes through one human being. Paul says in Romans 5.15, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the gift in the grace by that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." Unquote. Note a couple of Old Testament parallels to how God works redemption through one man, which anticipate the work through the one man, Jesus, the Messiah. The author of Genesis described an example of the death of humanity and destruction of the earth in the floodwaters in Noah's day, humanity except for one human being and his immediate family, was destroyed by the floodwaters. The old world perished. The old world was destroyed. But the receding of the waters brought renewal of life and a new world, a new beginning, a kind of new history. In the New Testament, the perishing of the old earth by the flood is described in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Quote, An earth formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Likewise, 2 Peter 3.13 goes on to say how the current age is destined to be purged by fire. Quote, but according to his promise, that's God's promise, we wait for a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." Unquote. Again, it should be emphasized that the biblical new creation does not involve a demolition of the current heavens and earth, followed by a total recreation of matter. Rather, as with the destruction and renewal of the earth after the flood during Noah's time, the new creation is a renewal or a restoration of the current heavens and earth to the righteousness and goodness that God intends. You can see that in 2 Peter 3, 6. This is an important point. Renewal and restoration are affirmation that God's creation is good. Indeed, like God said, very good. To maintain that this earth will be totally demolished by disintegration contradicts what God said that this material world is good and rejects God's promise that he can and will restore creation to righteousness. Biblical belief 
is not neoplatonic that wants to escape the created world to some nebulous disembodied state. So, through the one man, Noah, humanity was restarted on a renewed earth. With Noah, God began a new beginning. It's fair to say that Noah, as later Jesus, was a kind of second Adam. Through one man, God formed a new humanity with a new covenant on a new land. Now consider another man, one single individual, one human being, through whom God brought about a new beginning. As we said, new beginnings are Yahweh's specialty. Yahweh God chose one man, Abraham. He was called Abram at the time of his choosing. And through him formed a new covenant people, or community of God. When the one man Abraham's descendants, through his barren 90-year-old wife Sarah, had multiplied, God redeemed them, brought them out of slavery into a promised good land. Known by Abraham's grandson as Israel, the Bible views Israel's exodus from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea as a new beginning, a kind of new creation. Note the parallels, how God's spirit, or wind, was involved in making dry land appear at these three events. First, the creation account of Genesis. Second, after the flood in Noah's day. And third, at the crossing through the Red Sea. The redemption of Israel out from Egypt was a new beginning, a new creation. No wonder Israel was to begin his calendar year by starting with the month of the Exodus. Again, we need to remember that redemption is a kind of new creation, a new beginning. God redeemed Israel, established a new covenant with a new community, which he called my people. And God promised and gave his people a new good land. The possession of a good land by the people of Israel is both a reflection back to Eden, but also a paradigm of the land to be given to the covenant people of God created in Jesus the Messiah. The meek shall inherit the earth. And keep in mind, all this began and came about through one man, Abraham. In just a minute, we'll look at more biblical examples of Yahweh God bringing about a new creation, or a new history, a restart, or renewal and restoration to a kind of Garden of Eden. But for Israel's prophets and people, all these biblical examples looked forward to the ultimate new creation, the consummation, the removal of death and the futility curse. And for Israel's prophets and people, this ultimate new creation was to come with the Messiah. This is what the Gospel of John is telling us. The new creation has begun. So now this next section we'll call Some Examples of New Creation in John's Gospel. Try googling new creation in the Gospel of John and see that the world of biblical scholarship and laity has and is recognizing that the Gospel of John is describing God's new creation work in and through Jesus the Messiah. In the show notes, I'll put a few of the references I came up with when I, when I googled new creation in the Gospel of John. 
But let's look at a few examples of how Jesus is being presented in the Gospel of John as the beginning of God's new creation in parallel to the Genesis creation account. First of all, the Gospel of John uses language and records concepts and events that parallel the book of Genesis. In our previous podcast, we mentioned how John reappropriates Genesis language in his prologue using words like especially the beginning, but also darkness, light, life, the world, and being born. John uses the Genesis language because he has in view the gospel of the new life that God brings about through Jesus. Let's look at the idea of days mentioned in the Gospel of John and in Genesis creation. As in Genesis, John makes reference to days of the week and the day's numbers. For example, the next day, John says, on the third day and on the first day of the week. References to the days of the week recall Genesis. It is quite likely that the seven days mentioned in the first chapter of John are an intentional allusion to the seven days in the first chapter of Genesis. Let's look at the idea of being in a garden, both in Genesis and in John. Like the first Adam, the Gospel of John describes how Jesus wrestled with doing God's will in a garden, compared Genesis 3, 1-6 with John 18, 1 and 26. The first Adam failed in the garden, but Jesus, the second Adam, obeyed. Also, the climax of John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus to life, is set in a garden. I'll read John 19.41, quote, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, unquote. Compare Genesis 2.8, quote, And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, unquote. John is the only gospel that mentions these gardens, and in doing so, alludes to the original man, Adam, in a garden. After his resurrection to new life, the first person to see the resurrected Jesus was Mary Magdalene. Mary thought that Jesus was, surprise, surprise, a gardener. The scene is a recreation, indeed a restoration, of the first man, Adam, who was placed by Yahweh God in the Garden of Eden. Again, I'll read Genesis 2.8. Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That's Genesis 2.8. Compare John chapter 20, verse 15. The book of Genesis starts with a man, a gardener in a garden, but then exiled from that garden. John's gospel has a resurrected man considered to be a gardener back in a garden. Now the phrase, it is finished, a language parallel between Genesis and John. In his prayer, the night before his crucifixion, the Gospel of John records the words of Jesus speaking to his father, Yahweh. In John 17.4, Jesus says, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Compare John 4.34. Then, for the Gospel of John, the last words of Jesus on the cross were, It is finished. It's John 19.28, also verse 30. The words of Jesus recall Genesis 2, 1-3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, 
which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. In John's Gospel, the Sabbath arrives after the completion of Jesus' work at his death. See John 19, 30-31. Jesus died on the evening before a Sabbath. His work was finished. The women and the apostles rested on the Sabbath, while Jesus rested in the grave. Then, John reiterates that what happened next occurred on the first day of the week. It's John 20, verse 1 and verse 19. The first day of the week is another allusion to Genesis. Jesus was raised to new life on the first day of the week, the first day of the new creation. The historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week, overlaps with the theological declaration that this is the first day of creation renewal. Jesus is the first of the old world to come through death into the new day. More details of language and events that are parallels between the Genesis creation and the new creation of the Gospel of John are cataloged in articles and books, like the ones you can see uh, listed in the show notes. The next section we'll call the Gospel of John's Signs and the Renewal of Creation. Now let's turn our attention for a few minutes to the miracles or signs that Jesus did as recorded in the Gospel of John, as they are also evidence that the new creation has begun. John tells us specifically that he recorded the signs that Jesus did, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John 20, 31. The signs that John presents are evidence that as the Messiah, Jesus ushers in the redemptive transformation of the old creation to the new. Let's look at the first sign miracle that Jesus did, or as Jesus said, that God did through him. John 3, 2, 5, 36, and 10, 32 and compare Acts 2.22, that God did the miracles through Jesus. The first sign is the changing of water into wine at the Galilean village called Cana. This water-to-wine event is a sign of the coming of the new, of the breaking in, of the recreation, of restoration, of the joy and abundance of the age to come. When Noah stepped off the ark, onto the new world. After worshiping God, what was the next thing recorded that Noah did? He planted a vineyard. That's Genesis 9, verse 20. Vineyards and the wine produced, used properly, of course, became one of the main biblical symbols of hope, of renewal, of the renewal of life, peace, joy, provision, and abundance on God's renewed earth. It's not because of the alcoholic potential of grapes that makes vineyards and wine a symbol of the age to come. The Bible clearly warns of the misuse of wine, but along with other agricultural abundance, the vineyard and wine became fitting symbols for God's blessings upon mankind, because God doesn't provide man with just subsistence water, but with the rich abundance, sweetness, joy, beauty, Luxury exemplified by wine, a 
product of peaceful inhabitation on the good land that God has given mankind. During the Solomonic kingdom, for instance, Israel, for however so briefly, had a taste of the peace, joy, and prosperity of a kingdom ruled by a son of David. The Bible described this as a time when, quote, Judah and Israel dwelt in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. That's 1 Kings 4.25, compare Micah 4.4. 4. Wine and vineyards are a chief sign of Yahweh's restored blessing upon his people Israel. On the other hand, the symbol of wine and vineyards can be used in a negative way. The prophets saw the lack of vineyards and lack of wine as a sign of the futility curse of the current old age and old system of paradise lost. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 24, verses 4 to 7. The earth mourns, Isaiah says, and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. And here's Joel 1.12. The vine dries up and gladness dries up from the children of men. But Yahweh promises restoration. Here is Isaiah again, who promises a reversal, the curse removed. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of wine on the lees, of rich foods full of taste, of wine on the lees, well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Unquote. To the prophet Isaiah, Abundance of vineyards and wine accompanied the abolishment of death and sorrow. And listen to Joel again, this time a description of a blessed reversal. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Unquote. Just about every one of Israel's prophets used the same type of imagery. Here's Amos, chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. One Bible commentator says, Vineyards and wine exist at every turning point in redemptive history and represent God's plan for creation brought to consummation, of God's desire for his people to experience joy and happiness. Wine is consummated creation. Now, on the night before Jesus was put to death at Passover, Jesus associated the coming of the kingdom of God on earth with wine. Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I shall not drink again 
of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Unquote. With so much rich symbolism from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament connected to wine and vineyards, it is no wonder the Gospel of John records this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him, John 2.11. The glory that Jesus manifested was that he is the Messiah whose coming ushers in the promised restoration of creation, symbolized in the Hebrew scriptures by abundant provision of wine. All of the signs that John's gospel records are evidences that through Jesus the Messiah, God is bringing about the promised redemption of mankind and creation renewal. Let's look at the lame walk and the blind see. No Old Testament prophet ever healed the lame or gave sight to the blind. These signs seem to be reserved for the Messiah and are evidence of the Messianic age. When restoration comes, when the new breaks in, for the New Testament authors, these miracles of restoration to health are evidences, signs, that Jesus is the Messiah. It is also of note, oddly enough, that none of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them describe a miracle of Jesus done in Jerusalem, okay? Except for one small exception in the book of Matthew. There's one verse that mentions Jesus' miracles in Jerusalem and Matthew. But otherwise, the miracles done in Jerusalem are described only in John's gospel with great detail. Jerusalem is the place, as the psalmist says, that Yahweh has commanded eternal life. Psalm 133, verse 3. John's record of the healing in Jerusalem of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5, and the blind man at the pool of Siloam, John chapter 9, are a declaration that the great hope of Israel expressed by the prophet Isaiah is here. Isaiah 35, 5-6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Unquote. Through Jesus the Messiah, God's original purpose for man is restored. God's original purpose for giving man legs was so that man could walk. Eyes are made for seeing. Through Jesus, the futility curse is lifted instantaneously in those two cases. As John recorded and Jesus said, Jesus, quote, made a man's whole body well, unquote. That's Dated five times in John chapter 5 and repeated in John chapter 7, 23. The making whole or making complete of a man's body is a sign that through Jesus, the restoration and rejuvenation of creation comes. Creation is restored to God's original purpose. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The lame shall leap like a deer. And now the dead are raised up. Although there are other important features of the age to come that is ushered in with the Messiah, perhaps there's none more important than the resurrection of the dead. 
God gave life to humankind at creation, in the recreation of resurrection life, sin and death are defeated, and God gives life again. Man is born again, resurrected from the dead, and placed on land. The Apostle Paul called the resurrection from the dead the hope of Israel. You can see that in Acts 23, 6, 24, 21, and 28, 20. The hope of Israel. Contrary to biblical Hebraic thought, the Greek thinker, and this applies to much of Western Christianity today, sought bliss in some disembodied, non-material existence. But not so the biblically-minded Hebrew, whose hope was in the promise of God, the bodily resurrection, and life on a renewed earth in which righteousness dwells. The Gospel of John records two resurrections, both in the vicinity of Jerusalem. These resurrection accounts are signs that the Messiah, Jesus, is here, that the new has come, death is defeated, the dead are raised. Resurrection of the dead is the ultimate evidence of renewal, of recreation. The first resurrection in the Gospel of John is that of Lazarus in chapter 11. The event is infused with the idea that the resurrection accompanies the coming of the Messiah. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha replies, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Then Lazarus, dead in the tomb, heard the voice of Jesus and came out of the grave alive. Compare John 5, 26 to 28. All those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man. The ultimate sign in the Gospel of John is the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead, which is the first moment of permanent recreation. Lazarus was raised only to die again. Like others, Lazarus had been resurrected as a sign of God's power at work in Jesus. But Jesus is the first human being resurrected to immortality. As mentioned, as recorded in John 20, it's not a coincidence that Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the first day of the week. In another parallel with the Genesis creation, the resurrection of Jesus is the first day of the new creation. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the beginning of God's new creation. So in summary, I've looked at some examples of new creation in the Gospel of John's language, the events he describes, and the miraculous signs to show that the prologue of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is about the new beginning that God brings about through Jesus the Messiah. The prologue, while intentionally alluding to and appropriating Genesis creation language, is not describing the original Genesis creation of land, plants, animals, and humankind. Rather, the prologue of John introduces Jesus through whom God brings about a new beginning, new creation, new life. In other words, to interpret John's prologue as referring directly to the Genesis creation is to miss or ignore that the Gospel of John is about God's work of new creation. 
John's Gospel sees God at work in renewal and recreation in and through Jesus. Jesus is not the creator or even the recreator, but he's the firstborn of the recreation, the channel through whom God recreates all. By describing the actual historical events in the life of Jesus, John wants his readers to understand and believe that in and through Jesus the Messiah, God has begun and will bring to completion the renewal of creation, which means for mankind life in the age to come. In John's Gospel, the new creation has so far only come through Jesus in sample and symbol as evidence of its eventual coming in fullness and incompleteness. In a future podcast, we hope to show how understanding John's gospel as a declaration of the new beginning or new creation fits the historical context of the first century. That is, a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, who indeed ushers in the new beginning, had significance and meaning for the first century readers of John's gospel. We also hope to see how other writers of the New Testament see Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, as the beginning of God's new creation. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishmachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.